Hey, hey, welcome to the 40 Athletes Podcast. I'm your uh, host, Jason Holzer, along with my co-host, Jimmy Huber. Jimmy, how you doing today, man? I'm doing great, Jason. I'm excited to be on with you and uh, actually have you introduce the guest and get going on this one. Yeah, man. You know, I, uh, I've i been following him for a while since I, I saw him in an interview on Mindvalley one time. And, uh, not only have I learned about a lot of nutrition from this guy, but also how to speak, how to interact. You know, there was a three, he has a three-hour YouTube video uh, from one of his talks, and I've never been so engaged for three hours straight. Like, the guy is a mastermind storyteller as well. Jason, I don't want to tell him this, but when he gets on, you kind of got a crush on him. So I, I don't want to, you know, in that, but, you know, make him feel you know, we kinda, like I bet whenever he was 35, he probably looked so much similar to myself. Just throwing this out there. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, he grew up a little bit, you know, to the north of me, you know, in Canada. And actually, you know, he has a pretty cool story. He was actually homeless at one point. So to see somebody that was successful as he is right now with what he's doing, to actually at one point ever as a teenager, not know where he was going to sleep. I mean, that's inspiring. In that's pretty cool. I also want to find out more about, about that itself. Yeah. So we have the uh, founder of WildFit, Speaker Nation on. We're going to welcome Eric Edmonds to the show. Here. Eric, how's it going today, man? It's going really well. Glad to be here with you guys. feel like this might be fun. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, you know what? That's our goal is to always have fun for sure. You know, it's life is too boring not to have fun. Well, I got uh, a record. When I was 35, I looked like Iron Man, not you. Hey, 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 I gotta say this, Eric. Honestly, when Jason knew you were coming on, I'm telling you, he, he was on like glee, excited, hit, hit, telling everyone around town. I mean, so he he's pumped up on this one. Cool. So, Eric, first question is like, how you know, how did you go from your childhood? You you were you were homeless at 15. How like how did that happen? And then how did you be, like, find the resilience to become who you are today? You know, I, I think I should say that, um, you know, there are different types of homeless. My homeless was a matter of um, my father and I having a very serious disagreement about um, my schooling, him wanting me to go to a very, very harsh, uh, almost military level um, uh, boarding school in northern Canada. I'd been there for two and a half years and I didn't want to go anymore. And my dad was only at that point, like three or four years sober. And, and I, I want to tell you, I, I think when I meet people that are, you know, that are sobering up from alcoholism, I often, you know, they have their AA birthday. So they like they've been sober. Well, I think that their AA birthday often refers to their like actual like when you're four years sober, you're a bit like a four year old. You know, that you're learning the world fresh again. Right. And so here I was. My dad was basically a four year old and and I was a, a bad 13 year old. And or 15 year old. And, um, and one day we had a real big bust up and, and I walked out the house and uh, I wasn't welcome to stay at his, he kicked me out. I wasn't welcome to stay there. And unless I went back to the boarding school, I stood my ground, said I wasn't going to go. He tracked me down on the streets. A couple of weeks later, he offered me $2,000 in cash. He said, I'll give you $500 in cash and $1,500 in June when you finish the year, if you'll go back to school right now. Now, I just want you guys to think about something. I'm 50 years old. I was when I was 15 years old. How much was two grand back then? Right. Like back then you go to a movie for $2. So two grand back then must be 20 today. And, you know, and I don't know what happened, but I just said, no, I, I just, <laughs> I had principles. I said, I'm not doing it. I made my, and, and so he wouldn't let me move in, back in with him. And, and so I had to figure that out. And, and I, you know, one big wake up I had during the lockdown, I was meditating about this whole thing. And, and I had this huge wake up. I saw something that I'd never quite seen before, but that was, I was homeless in the winter time. And thank God, 
because you see Edmonton has quite a mild summer, quite a hot summer, in fact, and there are lots of beautiful parks. And so if it was summer, I could have gone and crashed under on a bench in a park somewhere. I could have crashed outside in a number of places, no problem. But then how many days does it take before you start looking and smelling homeless? You know, when you're sleeping on benches or sleeping under trees, but because it was minus 30 outside, I couldn't do that. And so I had to find ways to make it work. And, you know, I still had a security key to the building my dad lived in. So sometimes I would sneak into the building and find somewhere quiet in the building. Like I figured out it was a 28 story building. And I figured out that if you went up the stairs to the 20, if you took the elevator up to the 28th floor and then walked over to this, nobody uses the stairs at the 28th floor. So you can sleep on the stairs up there. And then I negotiated a deal with a guy who owned a local video arcade. And I said, look, I'll come and open for you in the morning and I'll close for you at night. So you don't have to be so damn tired all the time. You just got to let me sleep in here at night. And because he didn't mind violating child labor laws, he agreed to the deal. And, you know, so I, it, it, it made me, it forced wow. me to be creative. And, but I would say that if it was summertime, I wouldn't have had that. And, and now I'm beginning to realize, man, there's so many times in my life when I've wished things were easier and I'm going actually harder stimulate some creativity, harder, create some wisdom and life experience. And so thank God I was homeless in the winter. But I will add this because I think that sometimes people catch on to this whole homeless thing and they're like, I must have terrible parents or something. I had great parents. I mean, my dad clearly had some stuff to deal with, with alcohol and, and addiction and what have you. But he, he, was, he was like an Indiana Jones crocodile Dundee adventure guy. He was a great father in many ways. And my mom was full of love and, and, and truly a great mother. It was a weird set of coincidences that put me in that situation. And I would say that one of the reasons that I survived it and thrived through it is because I actually had really great parents. Yeah, I want to go back. You said meditating at 15. I actually started meditating. meditating? Just now when I refer to meditating, I was actually referring to now meditating in the lockdown about when I was 15. But oh, I actually started God. meditating when I was 12. So how did, you, how did you get a meditation and what kind of meditation were you doing at 12? You know, it's, it's, it's kind of funny. I wouldn't have known to call it meditation, but what happened was, and you guys are, I don't, you guys are a bit young for this, but do you, do you guys know that the $6 million man? No. So the $6 million man was the coolest show in the seventies. Like it was a man barely alive, but we can rebuild him He'll be faster, stronger, and better than before. And what happens is this like test pilot, crashes his plane and he loses two legs and an arm and an eye and they give him bionics, right? This is like, this is long before RoboCop and this stuff, right? This was pioneering stuff. And so he was kind of like a superhero with, you know, with, uh, um, anyway, in one episode, they bring this other guy on who has some kind of t weird super ability to hold his breath for a long time. And what they would do is they would, they would um, put him in a tank of water and then he would hold his breath and it would be like, like 20 minutes of breath hold. And on the show, the way they produced it was that as long as he was meditating, they didn't call it that, but as long as he was visualizing this lake and as long as he could keep the water glass flat, he could hold his breath. But if the ripple started on the water, he would lose his focus and he'd have to come up for air. And I just remembered them showing that in this episode. And so I started meditating with a lake and keeping the water flat. And then of course I went to boarding school where we did a lot of canoeing. We did a 900 mile canoe trip through Northern Canada. Like if you can imagine 900 miles on canoes, three weeks, it was incredible. And so now my meditation changed where I would actually paddle on the lake, but I would paddle a war stroke. Um, if you don't know paddling so much, normal paddling, you dip the paddle in, pull, take it out, pull. But a war stroke, you pull the paddle back, turn it, feather it, and push it back through the water flat. So you don't ever get any dripping. It's, 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 a, it's a silent form of paddling. So I started doing war strokes in my, in my meditation where I would paddle across this lake really quietly and keep the water flat. And, and anytime I was like in, 
school and there was a bad subject that I just couldn't like, or if I was in a doctor's office or I was on a flight, I would go into that place and meditate in that place. So what would you do? Just breathe and just, just quiet your mind and think. Breathing, relax all the muscles in the body and focus the mind on that one meditation. Okay. I'm going to tell you guys, look, I'm a pretty practical guy. I'm not so into the whole crystals and incense and you know, okay. I I'm wearing crystals and I have incense burning, but that's a different story. Like, I consider myself a more practical guy. May, that may not be true, but I will tell you something amazing is that I meditated at that lake, going to that lake in my mind for years and years and years. And the way the meditation worked is I had an induction. The induction was walking step-by-step step uphill toward this lake. Now, first of all, you don't generally walk uphill to a lake. For some reason in my meditation, you walked uphill to the lake. And so you walked up the hill to the lake and then you would get to this little clearing and there was a canoe there in my meditation. And then I would... Oh, okay. Diehard meditating people. I'm talking about visualization. If you don't like you know, meditating people, like, that's not meditating. That's real. I don't really care. Call it napitation if you want. But the point is, is that there is the, in my, in my visualization, in my meditation, there was a canoe there. I'd get the canoe, put it on the water. And then I would just paddle around the lake, listening to loons and just be there very, very present and then allow thoughts to come up. And as they came up, let them out and just let them go and not stress about it. Now, this is creepy guys. 22 years old. I've been doing this for 10 years at this point. 22 years old. I go to buy myself a Mercedes. I'm so excited. I'm, I'm making money. I'm going to go buy myself a super cool Mercedes. I walk into the dealership. They won't let me test drive it because at 22 years old, I still looked about 12, right? So they, like, you're, you're not test driving a Mercedes. I was so angry. The guy goes, he goes, well, I'll talk to the manager for you. And I'm like, whatever. I walk out and I'm really pissed off. And that weekend I go camping with some friends in a four by four. Thank God I didn't buy a Mercedes. I went to the dealership the next day. And this is what's funny. The cash deposit that I was ready to put on the Mercedes was the same price as the whole Jeep. So I <laughs> bought myself a Jeep. And one day, and I got these old logging maps. Um, you know, like in British Columbia, Vancouver, where I was, there's all this logging industry. And, I, and back then there was no Google Earth, right? So I got these old logging maps so I could like explore around the mountains. So I got in my Jeep one day. And I'm looking for this lake I see on the logging map. And I get to this area. It's a cleared out area where they turn the logging trucks around, park my Jeep. And the lake is that way. But it's like a huge hill in front of me. This is crazy. So I'm, I got my equipment on. I've got one of those like inner tubes that you, you know, that you can float in the water. I got it all. I got it on my back. And I'm walking up, up and up and up. And I'm like, up to a lake. And then I smell water. You know, if you ever spend a lot of time in the wilderness, you get this. There's this smell that water has. And. I smelled the water and I walked up over the clearing and the lake was there and it was the same lake. I mean, it was the same lake and I don't care if you believe the canoe was there. There was a canoe there. Now in wow. my nation, it was a red canoe and in reality it was a yellow canoe. I'm going to let the universe off on that one. So I, uh, but I just, somebody had hiked a canoe in there and they just left it there. And I guess they probably came up on the weekend. So I took the canoe and went for a paddle around the lake. And for the first time I was actually paddling around a lake that I'd already paddled around a thousand times. It was pretty cool. So how, how did, how did you use visualization creativity to create wild fit? How, how did wild fit come about and what is wild fit about? What do you, what's your mission behind it? So around the same time as I bought that Jeep, 1991, 92, um, I was sick and not, not like dying, but like in pain all the time, always, you know, throat infections, uh, sinus infections, uh, horrible digestive cramps and pains, headaches and cystic acne. I still have scars uh, from, from what happened. It was awful. 
And um, and then one day I was sitting with some friends and, you know, they they uh, they kind of inspired me to think about food. They, and they introduced me to Tony Robbins and Tony Robbins was like, you got to stop eating that garbage, man. And, and I thought, oh, shit. OK, I'll try the 30 day challenge. And 30 days later, I'd lost 35 pounds. I wasn't fat. You wouldn't have said that I needed to lose weight. But boy, did I. It changed my entire appearance. My face changed my sinus and all all these things. I've been visiting doctors for almost 10 years. They had done nothing for me. And in 30 days, it was all over. At that point, I became really curious about how my doctors had failed me so terribly. And then, you know, I found out something shocking, something truly shocking that should be on the headline of every newspaper tomorrow, as far as I'm concerned, that you can go to school for eight years, six years of medical school and not study food. Food is not a required topic in medical school. That's like saying that Wow. You're going to become an auto mechanic and oil and gas are not required topics. I mean, that's just insane. And that's what happens when your medical education establishment is funded by pharmaceutical because, you know, they just want doctors to be sales, drug salespeople. By the way, I know not all doctors feel that way. And these days, many doctors are waking up and they're taking their own education on and they're, they're looking at preventative medicine. But back then, that wasn't the case. And so I became really curious about that. Also, my great grandfather had discovered the oldest Homo sapien skull in history. So as a child, I'd been really fascinated by human history and anthropology. And one day all these things just kind of met in the middle and I suddenly realized this, every species on earth has an evolved diet. That means that they have evolved nutritional requirements and evolved food production cap capabilities. Like a beaver can eat wood because the beaver's got the teeth and the stomach for it. We can't. So even if there are positive, even if there are great nutrients in the wood, unless you're a termite or a beaver, they're not available to you. So you have to have both the requirement for the nutrient and the ability to extract it. And I started thinking if that's true of every animal on earth, surely it's true of humans. And so in 1995 or so, I wrote an article called the human diet. And I put forward this idea, this theory that there is a provable historical human diet. And that's what started the journey. So, um, one of the, if you could give us like, you know, quickly one or two, three like billion blocks on the human diet, what are the things that we should be including maybe daily, monthly? You know, because some things, some animals eat seasonally, right? They, in the wintertime, they'll bulk including up. Us. Including us. Yeah. So, including us. What are the things we should be including then? So, uh, before I answer that, let me just say this that because I've had such a big impact on so many people around the world around food, the first people, first thing people want to ask me on a podcast or media or what have you is, well, what should we be eating? If, if the answer to that was useful, then the diet industry wouldn't exist because the truth about food's been out for a long time. In other words, if it was as simple as going, okay, Jason, from now onwards, you eat a lot of this and not a lot of that. Okay, go to it, pal. If that worked, there'd be no diet industry. But the fact is that it doesn't work because we're being, we're, we, you know, we've been conditioned as children that a cookie equals love or painkiller or distraction. We've had the food industry buying our holidays, sponsoring our holidays. We can't have Easter without chocolate, you know, so, the, the, the difficulty is, is that what you should eat and what you shouldn't eat, most people already know. You, in fact, already know. Jason, what do you think you should eat more of? As a human group. Sure. Drink more water. Drink more water. Uh, some fruits, probably. Maybe some protein as well. Yeah. There you go. You already know. And what should you eat less of? Uh, bad sugar. Yep. Like processed sugar. Um, anything with, uh, with um, corn syrup in it. Um, high fructose corn syrup, nah. and which, by the way, I got some beets out the other week in the jar, and it had high fructose corn syrup. I was like, I'm, I'm even trying to eat healthier, and it's still in there. Like, come on. I mean, and so it's that's what it's like. I can struggle with. It's like I'm trying to do my best, but then there the food go. industry puts like this that's crap. Where we in. Come in. 
that's where we're really involved. Yeah, we've got the nutrition locked in, but the bigger thing you have to lock in is the psychology. And that's where we've been so very successful. So I can tell you, you're, you're, you're right. What people should be eating more of is seasonal vegetables, very seasonal fruits, and assuming they're not vegan, they should be eating a wide variety of healthy, really ethically produced meat, fish, and egg products. And, and if, people, if people fundamentally focus their efforts in those areas and then reduce their intake of additives and flavors and, and, and chemicals and refined sugars and sweeteners and, and frankly, most carbs, they would have a complete renaissance in the experience of life, but they won't. And that's because there are psychological patterns and addictions that have to be addressed as well. And that's really what we focus on is helping people with that. One more thing to answer your question is that you, you said some animals eat, eat, um, eat seasonally. Yeah, humans. Humans eat seasonally. We're supposed to be seasonal eaters. We, our body has modes. It has uh, your pancreas. Pancreas is freaking genius organ. I mean, if you just really dive into what the pancreas does. Here's an example. When you are not eating carbohydrates and you are making energy demands on your body, your pancreas produces glucagon, which triggers the body to metabolize fat. So you become a fat burner, which is a, that's where ultra marathon running comes from. That's where functional parenting comes from. That's where being a great long lasting full energy entrepreneur comes from burning fat. But the minute you eat carbohydrates, your pancreas goes, ah, carbohydrates start producing insulin. And it's using the insulin to manage the carbohydrate intake so that you can burn the sugar that you have immediately eaten. You can store some in your blood. You can store some as glycogen in your muscles in your liver. And if all that gets full, then you can start storing that sugar as fat. And, and your body is able to do both of these things. But the vast majority of people only ever live in the one mode. That is, I'm eating carbs every single day and my pancreas is doing a job that it used to maybe do 10% of the time, 100% of the time. So we wonder why we have a prolific explosion of obesity, diabetes, pancreatic cancer, because we're misusing the pancreas. Another example, if you're eating a very uh, acidic life, like if you're eating a lot of acid causing foods, then your pancreas will make a loan from your bones. It'll borrow calcium from the bones and create calcium bicarbonate to balance off the acidity in your blood to keep your blood pH at the right level. You know, you have these people that have the alkaline diet, man, if you let your blood get too acidic, you'll die. Have you ever heard of that? Like it's, it's not so easy to do, right? And that's because the, the, the pancreas is regulating that. But if you don't run the pattern, then that means you never repay the calcium loan. So what's supposed to happen is that when you then move into a much more alkaline season, your body then takes the calcium and repays back to the central, bone of cal the central bank of calcium, which is your bones. Only take a look around the world. In, in, the, in the highest milk drinking countries in the world, Canada, America, Norway, Sweden, Finland, and so on. We have the highest levels of hip fracture, which is obviously an indicator of osteoporosis, weak bones. Why? Because we're misusing the pancreas. Hmm. Seasons. You, uh, one thing, Eric, you mentioned the psychology. What are some of the hacks you could give to people of how they can develop a psychology to basically eat the right you know, foods you're talking about and have this type of healthy way of life? I'll give you two. There, there's many, and they are nigh on magical in their ability to transform somebody's life. Here's one. Uh, Jim, tell me, do you have a food that you know you shouldn't eat so often, but you do eat it from time to time, you know, because, yeah, because you do. Ice cream. Okay, ice cream. So, so we're going to do, I'm going to give you both tips relative to ice cream. So tip number one is, and have you ever said to yourself, I'm going to just kind of cut down the ice cream a little bit? Have you ever kind of? Yeah. But then one day you go, I'm going to have one anyway. Yeah. Okay. Now let's happen. Let's that say the night, by the way, Eric. there you go in the middle of the night. There you go. Now let's say you are 
feeling a certain way, okay? You're feeling a certain way and you suddenly decide you're gonna have ice cream. When do you start to feel better? Well, I start to feel better right when I have the ice cream. Nope. I don't, because when nope. I start tasting it, I start like, mm, man, no? Huh. Hey, watch this. Okay. Jason, you be my witness now. Jim, I want you to pretend you're feeling a little low. Okay. It's kind of middle of the night, feeling oh. a bit low, and then suddenly this voice pops in your head. Let's go get an ice cream. Mm -hmm. When do you start feeling better? Uh, right then. That moment. Right Jason, that moment. you saw it. Oh, I saw it, yeah. yeah. It was so right there. Yep. The Here's the kicker yeah. that could change your whole life. In that moment, you started producing feel-good chemicals because of the rebellion. You were like, oh, I'm having the ice cream. I'm treating myself. As a child, I got the ice cream because I fell down and skinned my knee, and now I get love. I'm ice cream. And you get all those chemicals from the decision. Now, Jim, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but there are certain chemicals that people sometimes use recreationally that make food taste better than it really is. I don't know if you've ever had the munchies, but what well, I'm trying to say, munchies. you've had the munchies? Yeah. So you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, now here's what happens. Somebody makes the decision in their rebellion or their treat or what have you to have the ice cream. They start producing a bunch of serotonin, which is basically what ecstasy does to people. And so now everything in life looks, sounds, feels, and tastes better than it did half an hour ago which means that the ice cream you're about to eat is actually going to taste better than it really does. That's why they want it to be junk food. That's why they want it to be bad because the more bad it is, the more good you feel in your rebellion. And then you create the linkage where you believe that it was that ice cream that made you feel good and it never was. So how do you shift, how do you shift in this? So when you get that voice that, Hey, you know, I can't eat that ice cream, you need to eat that ice cream, feel good about it. What do you, what do you I, do? I'm going to tell you, I'm going to give you the short answer. I'm going to give you the medium answer. I'm going to give you a long answer. Short answer is the next time it happens to you. And are you watching a movie or something when it happens? Sometimes it's getting, maybe I'm at a practice, basketball practice late, get home. I'm kind of fatigued, a little tired. And I'm like, yeah, I'm yeah. And, and, and by the way, you've been at practice, you've been using your muscles. So now your body's yeah. about to produce a bunch of, of, of HGH. Your body's going to make human growth hormone while you sleep, except that insulin breaks down the human growth hormone. So what you'd like to do is have a big bowl of ice cream and fuck up all of your human growth hormones. So your body can't do its job at night. But if you want to keep doing that, then let's talk about how you could experiment and change it. Now, how about this? When the next time it happens to you, you get home from practice and the, and the voice pops in your head, hey, Jim, go get an ice cream. Say yes. And notice how you feel right away. Really pay attention to it and notice that it was the yes that made you feel good. Then maybe change your mind and go, maybe I don't really want to do that. Just try it out. Just see if you can buy yourself a moment of consciousness. I saw... Um, one of my favorite uh, um, lessons in life comes from Viktor Frankl. And he says, there's a moment between stimulus and response. And it is in that moment that all great human freedoms exist. So the stimulus is your voice says, let's go have the ice cream. Then your body responds to that and goes, wow, that's going to be great. And in that moment, just because I've talked to you about it this way, there's a chance. There's a chance that tonight when that happens to you, you're going to hear my voice going, don't do it. <laughs> and then, and then you have a choice at that point to follow that conscious thought or to continue your unconscious behavior and mess up your HDH production for the night. Now, one other thing about this, uh, the psychology thing is, is that let's also take a look at, um, why you think it's such a great idea. Like where did you get the idea that, um, moldy milk from some mammals 
mammary gland, which by the way, one in five cows in the United States have um, antibiotic resistance mastitis, which means that there's a huge flow of pus, well, uh, sorry, scientifically speaking, white blood cells in the milk. And so you're gonna take some of that moldy, pus-filled milk, add sugar to it, and then you're gonna eat that and think that that's really gonna be a lot of fun. Where did you learn that? Where where did you learn that? And and I, I when I was a kid, when I was a kid, you know, you grow up be after like a game or something, we're going to go get an ice cream cone, right? You'd have the ice cream truck coming down the street, ringing the bell, having the music playing, ice cream, ice cream. Mom come out, got the money, get your ice cream. We're hanging out, their buddies, we're playing, yeah. we're eating ice cream, have a little break in between. And now you got a six year old who's still trying to eat the ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> And that's what's going on for a lot of us is that we, we've we've been conditioned by childhood events and now we're just trying to eat nostalgia. We're just trying to relink to the emotions that, that food created for us, despite the harm that it might be. Now, listen, I'm not here to say nobody should have ice cream. I, Wild Fit is about freedom. It is absolutely about freedom. So it's what I don't want you to do is eat ice cream and feel bad about it. But I also don't want you to not eat ice cream and feel bad about it. What I want to do is help everybody in the world get to a place where they can eat whatever they want, feel good about it and not eat what they wish they wouldn't and feel good about it. So how, how do you get into sugar is such a big thing now, right? I mean, sugar is in almost like everything. And and sugar is, is the research shown is not good for you, for your body. So can you talk about the uh, negative of eating a lot of sugar, what it does to your body and ways that maybe people can think about changing their approach of consuming sugar each and every day? You know, we, we could do a whole masterclass on this one conversation. Um, you know, there, there, there is so much in it. Um, what I'm gonna do is focus on one particular area and that is that in essence, your body has three fuel sources. Uh, your body can, can burn sugar for fuel, your body can burn fat for fuel and your body can also burn protein for fuel. And the truth is your body wants to burn all three at different times. And it's very important to give your body the opportunity to burn all three because those are, those are important bodily functions. For example, when your body is burning protein, it will only do that as long as all the blood sugar is gone and all the glycogen is gone. And, 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 and there's some sort of stress on the system like fasting or intense exercise or something like that. And then your body goes, shoot, we got to break down some proteins. But you know what's so amazing, you guys? Your body is so smart. In the same way that a lion takes out the weak from the herd, your body burns the old and sick proteins first. Think how important that is. Think how important it is that at least every so often your body gets to do that because these old and sick proteins are just going to build up and create internal toxicity. So you, 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 this is a, an important cleansing function. It's called autophagy. So now here's the problem. If you're eating sugar all the time, then your body will never do that exercise. Now, the next fuel source is fat. And in my opinion, fat should be the primary fuel source. Sugar should be kind of like the nitrous oxide. You know, like in your car, you can have gasoline and then you want to get away from the cops, you kick the nitro button, right? Like in the video games. Well, well, what I would say to you is fat is the gasoline and nitrous is the sugar. So sure, you can fire up the sugar every now and again when you really want to. But for the most part, your body, your immune system, your mental health, your, your, your flow of energy and your temperament are all gonna be massively improved by being largely fat burning. And so again, if you're eating a lot of sugar, the body is always going to burn the sugar as a priority to get, it's gonna burn it or store it as fat, burn it or store it as fat. It's gonna get it out because it can only hold so much sugar in the blood at a time. So if you take a ton in, it's gonna burn it or put it as fat, burn it or put it as fat. And so if you only ever have carb days, well, you're living in one cycle, you're living in one season and you're causing a number of, and you're missing out two really important metabolistic cycles. But you hear all the time, like, you know, uh, advertisement, 
fat free, fat free, no fat, no fat. I mean, and now you're talking about fat is a good thing. We should eat fat. Like what kind of fats should we be eating? Well, let's say this is sugar good or bad. Yeah, it is good or bad. Uh, you know, I, I, I would suggest to you that the seasonal and occasional consumption of a fresh piece of fruit full of fructose is not a bad thing. You know, it's not it, it's not alone bad. Is oxygen good or bad? Well, it depends. I, I mean, it's really good. But if there's too much of it in the room and you light a match, it's bad. So everything is good or bad. Right. And so fat is fat good or bad? Yes, there are horrible fats. There are trans fats like manufactured bullshit fats. And then there are also seed oil fats, which are atrocious and terrible for us. So, you know, what? but one of the problems we have is that in the 1950s, the sugar industry launched an incredibly powerful campaign to convince us that fat was the cause of heart disease because the credible science of the time was starting to indicate that sugar might be the, large, the, the biggest influence in the development of hypertension and heart disease. And the sugar industry knew it was incredibly bad for that to get out. So they hired two Harvard researchers to commission a study to prove that fat was evil. And these guys did their study. I mean, it's an air quote if I've ever seen one. They, they did that study and then they, um, uh, they did the study and they, uh, they got it published in the New England Journal of Medicine and it became lore. And so the low fat movement was, was created. It was wrong. Now, I am not a high fat proponent. There are these people out there that have these like low carb, high fat diets. I believe low carb, high fat is a functional way of breaking food patterns and losing weight. But I don't believe that our ancestors ever had consistent and regular access to excessive levels of fat. The average animal in the African bush is somewhere between four and 10% body fat. The average cow is a whole lot higher than that. What, what do you, what do you, we deal with a lot of athletes and this thing you talk about like Gatorade, um, these sports drinks and athletes think they need to be drinking the sports drinks. Is that beneficial for them or should no. they drink just water or? Absolutely not. It, it, there's nothing beneficial about it. It, it is sugar. It's going to spike your insulin. But, you know, look, if you want to run a marathon and hit the wall at 17 miles, drink Gatorade. And then if you don't want to hit the wall, then you're going to have to keep drinking Gatorade on the entire run the whole time because you're burning sugar and burning sugar is aging you quickly and damaging you. It's like, it is not an, sugar is not an endurance fuel. So if you're, if you, if you have, especially in endurance sports, you want to be a fat burner. You don't want to be a sugar burner. Gatorade is honestly like you may as well be drinking Coca-Cola as far as I'm concerned. They've done a great job marketing it. You know, oh yeah, it's electrolyte and it's, you know, it's got all this, you know, you know, frankly, in my opinion, I've, I have tasted Gatorade and to me, it sounds like it, it tastes like sweet and sweat as far as I can tell. And I, I'm not interested. By the way, you can see I'm not sponsored by Gatorade and neither will this podcast episode as far as I can tell. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> so, is that in like water? And if you want to put some electrolytes in it, buy some. Sure, but, but if you're going to put electrolytes, not sugar-based electrolytes, salt-based electrolytes. Like honestly, I'm, I was at the gym. I'm at the gym most mornings, and I went to the gym and I, I I pour water and I actually grind salt into it. Like I actually put a little salt in my water when I'm doing a big workout. I'm burning. I'm going to use a lot of salt, and I know that. And by the way, you know it's really crazy. I saw one of these guys on Twitter, and I love him. He's a great. I can't think of his username just at the moment, but he's so good in the fitness space. But the other day, he said. In order to put on muscle, you need to do this, 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 and this. And the one thing he left off, you need to drink water and keep two things left off. You got to drink water and you got to take in salt because the thing is your muscles are made of water. So if you're running low on water, you can't build muscles. 
So you got to stay really well hydrated and you got to keep your, your, your electrolyte levels up high. It's, it's is there a sure. certain type of salt? Like is it the pink salt or a certain type of salt? that this I, I would go with um, naturally occurring like, like, uh, uh, um, yeah, like, like Himalayan rock salts or, or dead sea salts or, you know, these, and I, I would not go after any of the processed garbage, iodized bleached bullshit salts. Okay. Uh, well, hey, so now we're at the point of the, the podcast where we ask you four questions. All right. They're somewhat sports related, but I mean, you can curtail it to any kind of coaching situation. But so number one, like, what's the best life lessons that you've learned from sports, sports figure, you name it? Uh, what's like the best life lesson that you've learned from from that? Hmm. Best life lesson from sports. So very many. Um you know, one of my favorite ones uh, was um, from Wayne Gretzky, and uh, I'm Canadian. If I didn't say it, they could take my passport. Did he play basketball, Gretzky? Is that what he yeah. did? Oh, I think it was uh, right. Let me just say this: whatever Michael Jordan was to basketball, yeah. Gretzky. Gretzky was at least that and more to hockey. And uh, and and you know, and so in any event, what I found really interesting about Gretzky is that he was not bigger than everybody else. He was not faster than everybody else. In fact, there was no like somebody like Pavel Bure. He was amazing because he was faster than everybody, right? So that's what got. But Gretzky wasn't anything better than anybody except predicting. He was the guy who was like, you don't skate to where the puck is, you skate to where it's gonna be, right? You really, he, and, and, and he had, and some guys were doing some NLP modeling some years ago and they figured out how he did it. And what he would do apparently is he'd, he'd, when he's on the ice, he would create, have you ever noticed if you're watching a game, you can predict the flow of the game better than when you're in the game, right? Mm -hmm. Like when you're in the game, you can only see that field of view. But when you're watching the game, you can see the whole arena and you can see the ebb and flow and you're going, I've seen that play before. I, I, and so what Gretzky would do is he would create an image of the rink above his head with all the players on it. And then he would fast forward it by five seconds and skate to where the puck needed to be. And, and so it really taught me there was something really powerful about being willing to visualize the future because sometimes your intuition is going to make, is going to make it incredibly predictive. And sometimes it's going to help you to make it happen that way. So that I really enjoyed that lesson when I learned it, it had a huge impact on my hockey. Like I played ice hockey and roller hockey changed everything for me. But then when I started applying it to, for example, public speaking, uh, when I overcame all my fears of public speaking and, and became a professional speaker, I do those same mental models long before I go on stage. So that has to be probably the biggest lesson from a sports person I can think of. You're talking about Edmonton, though. I read a story when they first came there. They weren't very good. And they, they were saying they used to uh, visualization. They used to put like the cup, the Stanley Cup. They used to put on walls. They used to put all the great ones. and They visualized themselves actually doing that in Edmonton. I don't know if you remember or heard about that. Yeah, the guy who owned the team was a guy named Peter Pocklington, and, and he, he bought the team, and, and, and it was an expansion team. And he said, we're going to win this Stanley Cup within five years, which is like, not going to happen. Not going to. And then they won it in the sixth year, and then oh. in the seventh year, and then in the eighth year, and then in the ninth year, and then they didn't win it in the tenth year, and then they won it again in the eleventh year, something like that. So they really did something different. And of course, you know, there were other players that were also foundational to that coffee and, and the rest of them, but, but Gretzky, Gretzky was special, is special. Yeah. Hey, by the way, I'm sure those uh, mental models you learned from hockey are also in your speaker nation course yep. as well. Oh yeah, I definitely use them across everything. I mean, the, the idea, I remember uh, there's a friend of mine, a speaker in Sweden, and he says, look, if you're talking to like a top, a number one business executive and a number one basketball player and a number one hockey player and a number one baseball player, they will have all have more in common with each other than the number 10 person in their respective sport. In other mm -hmm. words, 
the, the top basketball player is going to have more and more in common with the top stockbroker than he is with the number 10 basketball player, because there's something about that top position. I, I saw Roger Federer. I am a huge Federer fan. I mean, I'm also a big Nadal fan. I mean, how can you not be, if you're into tennis at all, these guys are great. And, uh, and Djokovic. I mean, how blessed are we to have those three guys like tearing up the courts the last several years? And I saw this interview with Federer and he was about 19 years old, just a kid. And it, it turns out he was actually an epic football player. Like he could have been a professional football player. And the interviewer says, well, what made you go with tennis instead of football? And, and Federer says something like this. He goes, I don't know. I just have the idea with tennis. There's a chance that I could be the best in the world. Cool. Yeah, like that. there did we you go. The, did you see the Djokovic one where uh, and it was on Gaia, an episode where he talked about he always visualized he made himself like a Wimbledon like trophy, and then he was struggling and uh, with he was losing, he was fatigued in some of the matches, and there was an individual that mentored him and said, "I can help you," and got him on a nutritional plan, took away like some of the foods he was eating and stuff like that, and he changed the way he was eating and drinking, and talked about how it took him to another level. I don't know if you no, I haven't seen that. I'll have to look it up. I'd be interested to see what they did there. Um, a, a good friend of mine is um, a doctor to most of those guys, the top tennis and golf players in the world. And he's a huge fan of Wildfit and has been taking those Wildfit principles. But Djokovic doing that predates my life. I can't take credit. <laughs> I won't. <laughs> yeah, so number two is if – I think I might already know the answer to this based off what you just said. Uh, if you could spend time with anyone you admire in sports, alive or passed away, who would it be and why? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Muhammad Ali. Oh, okay. I thought yeah. you'd go with Ray Grisky, but Ali. Okay. No, I, I, I've met Wayne. He's a fabulous guy. I, I like him, and 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 yeah, it would it would be great to talk with him. But there's there's something about um, there's something about Ali. There, I, I I just I I feel like I don't know. There's there's something almost magical about him, and and uh, I I just grew up being. And I'm not even a big fan of boxing for what it's worth. But there's something about his energy, and and also the role he played. Like okay, like. Okay, Gretzky set all kinds of records, but he didn't change the world. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Ali changed the world. Ali, Ali had a measurable impact on society, on race relations, on religion. And I, I just think he's a truly uh, fascinating guy. The champ. That uh, question number three is, what is the best advice you received from you know, a coach you've worked with, uh, been around? What's the best advice you received? Um, off athletics here, just generally from a coach. Could be anything. You can be yeah, anybody. Yeah. I'll tell you, I can tell you for sure. Um, I, there's been many, but the one that strikes, that sticks out in my mind is there, there came this point in my business where I stopped being interested in my first business, which was mobile computing and, and wireless networking and barcode data capture stuff. I, I, I had gotten to the point where I just didn't like my business anymore. I just didn't like it. And I got on the phone with my business mentor and I said, I'm in really big trouble because I, I can't get up in the morning. I, I am sick and tired of wireless networking. I am sick and tired of barcode scanning and freight shipping, logistics, inventory management. Like, no, I don't want to do this anymore. And he goes, well, sell the business. And I go, it's not there yet. It's just not there yet. It's not ready. It, it, this is at about like four or five years into the business and it just wasn't ready to be sold. And he goes, well, you got a problem because if you don't sort that shit out, your bankruptcy is next, right? If you don't, if you don't stay in the game. And I said, yeah, but I just, I, can't, I hate it. Like, I don't, I don't want to go today. Like, I, I'm really, I love the people, but I just don't. And he goes, okay, wait, 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 wait. When was the last time your business gave you goosebumps? It's a good question. It's a very good question. So I said, well, about two weeks ago, one of my staff, he's been with me now for about, you know, from almost the beginning, say five years or something like that. 
And uh, when he came to work for me, he was long-term unemployed. He'd been on what they, in Britain, what they call the dole. Basically, he was on public funds and had been long-term unemployed for, all, for many years. And now he's been working for me and he told me he wanted to get a mortgage. So I helped him write his application for the bank. I wrote him a reference letter and he got a mortgage and I went to his housewarming party. Goosebumps, man. Like that was, that, that's life-changing. And my, my coach is like, oh, that's awesome. When was the last time before that it gave you goosebumps? And I said, well, there was this other time where one of my, two of my staff that worked for me were married and they had a child from one of their marriages and the police came to their house to take the child away under some, and, and they called me on a Saturday morning at eight o'clock. And I, I just got in my car, drove over to the house. I said, don't let the police into their house. They go, what do you mean? Don't let the police in. Of course, when you're low income and you don't have an education, you don't know what your rights are. You don't, you don't know that the police don't have the right to just crash down your door and walk in. So I said, whatever you do, don't let them in the house. Got to their house 10 minutes later, the police are standing on the step. I go, excuse me, gentlemen. And I walk in past them, get in the door, open the door, talk to the couple, find out that the husband's the, the child's mom, the husband's ex-wife has just demanded the child back without any due process. So I open the door again, go out, talk to the policeman. I go, guys, sorry, I must sound a bit strange with my weird North American accent. And you guys are here in Britain and I, you know, I, I really don't want to cause a problem. So I just want to find out what's the story here. You guys would like to take the child back to the North of England. Yes. I said, great. Do you have like a child protection order? No. Okay. Do you have a warrant of any kind? No. So would it even be legal for you to take the child at this point in the car? No. So instead, what we could do is we could open the door and you could talk to the child and find out the child is happy and healthy. And then you could report that back to the mom. And then she could go to the courts and do the right thing. Right. And they're like, that sounds like a good plan. <laughs> so, so I'm not exaggerating. It went exactly like that. And so we opened the door. I said, Dwayne, come and talk to these officers. I said, cops are the coolest. And I did the whole thing that you would for an eight-year-old. Like, cops are so cool. You know, they, they keep your neighborhood safe. You know, come on over. And he comes over and he's a little afraid. And the boy, the guys, they're like, hey, how are you? And, you know, how are things? And are you liking things here with your dad and blah, blah. And he's like, all cool. And then the cops got it and drove away. And I'm, I have goosebumps now telling you the story. Yeah. It was like, it, I felt like a superhero. And so now my mentor said to me, I see what the problem is. He says, you think you have a barcode data capture company, but what you really have is a personal development industry, a personal development company hiding in, in the data capture industry. So you need to hire a manager to manage the day-to-day -day operations of the business that you hate, and you need to work on your people. You need to work on staff and, and, and helping them improve their lives and, and, and all that stuff. And I, I did that, and I would put to you that that's the single biggest reason I was able to sell that business and, and retire young from, from the IT sector. That is mm -hmm. awesome, man. Not wow. only did you get goosebumps, you fell in your plums, man. Yeah. <laughs> wow. And, and I, that's what it came down to. I just really liked helping people improve their lives. So I, I it, whether it was helping them at work or helping them, in their, it was just awesome. That's really neat. And the last one is this. What if you could have one character trait or life skill that you could have an individual that you're hiring to work for you or you're coaching or whatever it be, what would that one character trait or life skill be? I'm sorry, you're not talking about me having the life skill. If I'm hiring- like If you are hiring somebody, if you had somebody, say you're a coach and somebody playing for you on your team and you had to get one character trait or life skill in that individual, what would it be? The number one, most important, most valuable, most influential, most leverageable life skill on earth that makes all the differentiation in your professional success and your personal fulfillment is the ability to communicate effectively. That's the one. So how does somebody go, how does somebody go about another speech? Uh, it can't be a lengthy one, but how does somebody go about improving their communication skills? Communicate. Well, 
Okay. Here's the great news is nobody was born a bad communicator. Nobody was born afraid of public speaking. Nobody was born like that. I can prove it to you. Just go on a plane and look for a two-year-old and tell me if they're afraid of public speaking. Like they're not. <laughs> they're just not. You know, that is something that we learn. And here's the good news. If suddenly today, you know, one of you guys wants to become a professional golfer, you're gonna have to go hire the best coach. You're gonna have to spend five years playing 10 hours a day, and maybe you could get on the senior tour. But the thing with public speaking is you were born a naturally gifted public speaker. Everybody was. And you then unlearned it. Many of us unlearned it because of an over overbearing parent or a terrible education system, what have you. So the good news is, is that it's not something you now have to learn. It's something you have to release, which means that it can literally change in a week for somebody. And so how can you do it? Well, there's a couple of basic ways. Uh, you know, one way, go join Toastmasters and just get some damn practice. Like you'll be amazed that like many things, if you can just get through the first 5%, it just gets easier and easier. But then of course, you know, we help people with that at Speaker Nation. We have programs designed to help people become really comfortable and confident in public speaking. Look, the three brands that I, that I own and that I, that I educate through are because there are three great gifts every human being should give themselves. There are other gifts too, but there are three that are foundational. The one is your health. If you have optimal health, you have optimal life experience. That's it. The number one is communication. If you are an effective communicator, you create every opportunity for yourself in the world. If you can speak confidently in front of a camera or in front of a large audience, the world is your oyster at that point. It changes everything. And so being able to communicate, and, and by the way, it's not just about public speaking, it's about what you do. Like for example, when those people needed help with the police, like, to be able to communicate confidently with people like that, that, that ability to communicate. And so that's why we created Speaker Nation. And then of course, the third gift is financial liberty, is helping people get to a place where their biggest mystery in life is not how to get to the end of the month with their money. It's to get to a place where, where they actually have um, a solid financial freedom and our path for teaching people that is through entrepreneurship. And I will, I know you said not long, but I'm gonna offer you a controversial opinion here. Money can buy happiness. I've decided. Now, I'm not saying money by itself can buy you happiness and money can, can also devastate happiness, but I just want to say it to you like this. Take a person who's living paycheck to paycheck with a debt load. Happiness is going to be difficult for them. It's going to be a little tougher. And one of the reasons is if they have a job they hate, if they have a job they hate, then what's going to happen? They're not going to be able to quit that job because they need their paycheck every month and they've got debt. But wait, the minute they pay off that debt and put one month of money in the bank, now when their boss is a jerk to them, they have a choice. There's a moment there where they're like, well, I, I have a month of money, so I don't have to put up with this abuse. And so suddenly they're allowed to exercise their self-respect. When they have three months of money, they totally can do that. And when they have 12 months of money saved up, now their boss is mean to them or whatever. And they're like, shit, I can quit tomorrow because I got a year of runway here. And by the way, this is also the magic point where you start to realize, wait a second, I have a year. I could follow my passion. And even if I didn't make money for the first three or four months, I can follow my passion here and maybe I can achieve the Holy Grail. And that is to get paid doing what I love. Hmm. Eric, thank you, man, for coming on today. Um, you know, we want to know how can people reach out to you, learn more about it? Where can they find you? Um, all those kind of great things. Sure. You know, um, I manage my own Instagram account. So if you ever have any follow-up questions, pop a note to me. I, I'm, I'm That's true. That is true because I've, I've done it. There you go. I, I can't promise I get back to everybody all the time, but I do my best. And I, and I really like Instagram is a great, it's the one tool that I, I, the one social media that I handle myself, everything else is people. Right. Um, but then if you're, if you have specific issues, like if, if you'd like to become more confident, 
as a public speaker, or you'd like to learn how to take content and turn it into a digital product, go to speaker, speakernation.com and we'll teach you about communication. If you're interested in being self-employed or an entrepreneur or creating financial freedom through business, go to businessfreedom.com. And if you want to completely revisit your relationship with food and create an entirely different quality of life, go to getwildfit.com and do the 14 day reset and it will change everything. Wow. That's awesome. Eric, I was going to tell you too, that is uh, Transcendence is what that name of the uh, um, the kind of documentary on Guy is where they have that. And actually Vision's on one of them, but uh, they have, I think, about like 12 episodes that go into in-depth stuff. And one of them is about nutrition with Mitch uh, on there. Cool. I'll check it out. Well, Eric, thank you again for uh, having us on the show, man. And we look forward to uh, learning more from you uh, as the years go on. Sounds good. I'm pretty sure you just thank me for having you on my show, but hey, it's all good. We can do it both ways. <laughs> hey. hey, Eric, I'm telling I'm you. I'm thinking ahead, man. I'm going to get off and actually just YouTube and listen to you for the next 24 hours. So. <laughs> thank you guys very much. Uh, let us know when you're, oh, you're live, but uh, make sure you guys send us the link so we can share it with our people and stuff and uh, keep up the good work. Nice to meet you guys. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, Eric. If you're uh, looking to transform your athletes, teams or organizations using essential life skills, find us at 40athletes.com. You can like us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel to get access to this great interview from Eric. And also for less than a dollar a day per athlete, you can transform your athletes using the essential life skills program. Thank you again for joining us today. And we'll see you again next week.